traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Financial markets are reeling from a new Black Monday. Tumbling oil prices sent shares plummeting in the most brutal day for trading since the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. On today's show, a new crude oil price war adds to the market chaos caused by COVID-19. When financial markets are in a sort of jittery or jumpy mood, anything that's unexpected is likely to make things jumpier. And we look at the booming telemedicine businesses being relied upon by millions of people in China. The government has recognised how important these online healthcare firms have been in supplementing China's physical healthcare system at a time of crisis like this. First, growing anxiety about the spread of COVID-19 continues to cause turmoil in financial markets. The latest bout of panic was spurred by a falling out among oil producers. Slumping demand for oil, a result of the virus, has heightened tensions between producers. Saudi Arabia wanted to cut production, Russia refused, and Saudi Arabia retaliated by sparking a price war. Oil prices crashed, stocks plunged. On Monday, almost £125 billion was wiped off the value of the FTSE 100. And on Wall Street, trading was halted for 15 minutes after the S&P 500 fell by 7%. So, how will the economy withstand this continuing storm? Charlotte Howard is The Economist's Energy and Commodities Editor. And John O'Sullivan is our Buttonwood columnist, writing about the markets. Charlotte, John, welcome. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Patrick. So, Charlotte, can I start with you? What on earth has been going on with the oil price? How big have the falls been and and why has it happened? What happened is the market was very surprised by what happened in Vienna last week. So OPEC and its allies, who are led by Russia, uh, met in Vienna to try to hammer out a deal for restraining production in the hope of raising oil prices, which had been falling amid uh, the spread of the coronavirus around the world. And most investors and buy-side investors, buy-side analysts, they thought that OPEC would be able to reach a deal because prices had fallen so precipitously since the start of the year. And what happened instead was that Saudi Arabia, which is sort of sick of cutting its own production on behalf of others around the world, um, was quite aggressive in trying to seek a deal and bring the Russians on board. They announced on Thursday what they hoped the production cuts would be without Russian buy-in. And then on Friday, Russia refused. What happened after that was in some ways even more extraordinary, which was on Saturday, Saudi Arabia said, okay, fine, you're not going to agree to this deal. We're just going to boost production. Our production costs are incredibly low. And beyond that, we're going to offer deep discounts to customers around the world to try to crowd other high-cost producers out. So their biggest discounts were on crude for Northwest Europe, which is meant to target Russia in particular. 
And then we saw this very deep uh, fall in oil prices, uh, first of all on Friday and then on, on Monday. It fell by up to a third at one point. And then it spills over from there into markets more broadly. I mean, John, what's the, what's the connection between, between one and the other? Or is it just this background of fear we've had for the past couple of weeks? It's a bit of that, but there's also, there's also a connection. As, as, as Charlotte said, when financial markets are in a sort of jittery or jumpy mood, anything that's unexpected is likely to make things jumpier. But there's also just, uh, there's a couple of sort of more direct channels by which a very sharp fall in the oil price spurs a reaction in various markets. First of all, obviously, there's there's large listed oil firms that now are going to take an earnings hit to the extent that these low oil prices persist for a while. So that's one thing. I think the more worrying aspect of this is the impact it has on corporate bond markets, particularly in high yield or, or junk bonds. Mark's already worried about companies that have lots of debt and need to roll it over quite frequently getting access to credit at a time when their earnings are going to take a hit because of the coronavirus, the spread of the coronavirus. And then you've got a situation where, uh, you know, uh, an industry that's a big chunk of the high yield world suddenly takes a, a really big earnings hit that you weren't expecting. So the fear is that not only that more and more of the sort of marginal producers shale oil producers get into financial trouble, leading to downgrades or defaults, but also that the sentiment around lending in high yield uh, affects other industries. And so that concern feeds back, goes to the bond market, feeds back into the equity market, which is already reeling from from the hit to the listed oil companies. And you've got a general concern. Normally, you'd have a, you know, a low oil price might be good for the world economy, but in the current circumstances, the net effect might actually be contractionary. The thing that's interesting is we did have a price war from the end of 2014 through to 2016. And what happened there is you saw, again, OPEC failed to reach an agreement in the face of rising American shale production. They decided to let production rise, fight for market share, and try to squeeze American shale producers. And it did have quite a big impact on Texas and other big shale hubs within the United States. But shale companies were able to weather that. And in the end, that price war was deemed too painful for the oil, big oil producing countries to bear for much longer. And that is actually what precipitated the deal between OPEC and Russia in 2016 to try to bring oil prices back up. The big difference this time around is that that prior price war didn't take place in an environment of incredible sinking oil demand and economic pain. So in the last price war, the low oil prices could go a bit further towards helping to to boost economic growth. Here, oil demand is already falling. Markets are already in free fall. So the idea that cheap oil is all of a sudden going to get all kinds of um, economic activity going again doesn't hold true in the same way. Can we talk a little bit about how the economics of oil have changed? Because you were touching on that, Charlotte. If you look back to the 1970s or the 1990s, what's the difference, both of you, between the oil market now and the oil market then? And how might those differences affect the world economy? Well, there are a few things to touch on. One is that um, the oil intensity of economic growth sort of declines as you move towards service economies. But you mentioned something that's quite interesting, which is this question of who's actually producing oil. So it used to be that the American economy in particular would really benefit from cheap oil. But now the oil industry within the United States has grown to the extent that America is the world's biggest crude producer, as well as an enormous producer of natural gas. And so when you have a big 
drop in the oil price, it actually affects America's economy in a different way because you have a real slump in economic activity in Texas, in North Dakota, in other big uh, hubs of shale production. And this, this price war is going to hit shale productions again in quite a different way than it did during the last price war from 2014 to 2016. So in the last price war, Shale companies were going really fast. The equities market had been sort of in love with the promise of shale and this booming production. And now investors have, are fed up with shale. They can't raise money. Um, they are quite strained already. The investors having deemed that it's just not a business that is really consistently profitable. And then in the hopes of winning back investors, companies have already cut quite a lot. So there's not that much further that they can cut um, in terms of their own operations. There's not a lot of fat there that they can cut in a time of, um, of economic duress. And so I think you will see quite a lot of pain across American shale fields. Last year, bankruptcies rose by 50%. I think that number will be higher in 2020. And I suppose a couple of other things are different. One is the position of Russia and the other is the background of COVID-19. John, how do you think those two things are changing the perception compared to previous oil shocks? Well, as Charlotte was saying, an oil price shock has an effect because it transfers wealth from someone to another. In 1973 and 79, in 1990, it was essentially a transfer from Western consumers to uh, Middle Eastern producers. And so Western economies suffered to the extent they were much more all, all intensive in, the, in production and use of oil. These days, so by symmetry, a falling oil price should be good for oil consumers and bad for oil producers. The problem in the current circumstances is it's not clear that the benefits to consumers can be realized very quickly. So if you're suddenly, you've got cheaper gasoline prices, you've got cheaper fuel prices for airlines, it's not clear that people are going to be out driving and taking plane rides in any case, so they're not saving any money on that. Eventually, when the economy recovers, low oil price is probably net positive. But what you've got in the meantime, as Charlotte was just saying, is enormous stress on oil producers. They've not got money coming in the door in any case because there's depressed demand. And now there's a flood of supply coming on, which has driven the price down further. So the stress on producers actually dominates the benefit that you might have got on consumers. So the net effect is actually, in the very short term, contractually for the world economy. Okay, we've had this period of turbulence for a couple of weeks now. The most extreme impact was felt on Monday. But what do we think might be coming next? Should markets be bracing themselves for more of the same? Well, we're up again today. And it's, that's, that's been a pattern, which is bad days followed by sort of OK days. I think in order for the markets to stabilize, you need probably two preconditions. One is a sense that the coronavirus has stopped spreading, that the worst is past us. And that means infection rates have to peak. And that means infection rates have to peak in places that are coming where the, the spread has, has been later than elsewhere. Already you're seeing factory workers returning to China. It's possible that the very worst of that is over. But we're still on the, the sort of upward part of the, the infection curve in, in Europe and particularly in America. And until that peaks, it's very difficult to feel confident that this thing is, is now going to go is going to be behind us and we're going to slowly get back to normal. So I think that's one thing to look out for. The other thing is, of course, is just prices fall to such levels that there are certain kinds of buyers that just literally come in and, and, and are bottom fishing. And already people are talking about that. So violent has been the declines. But I don't think you start to see a rally until we're clear that the worst of the, the, the infection is behind us. And that is, is several weeks away. And just to go back to where we started, 
Charlotte, what can we expect from oil prices looking ahead? If I could predict what happens with the oil market, I would not be working in journalism. But I would say that generally, OPEC has another meeting, in, and I would be making a lot of money for for myself. But it, in June, there will be another meeting of OPEC and the OPEC Plus alliance. It may be that in the coming days, you see a surprise deal emerge just because Saudi Arabia's scorched earth policy is so damaging. But it's worth highlighting in terms of the risks posed by that price war that you have a huge squeeze in American shale. Russia's actually quite resilient because oil is denominated in rubles and it's able to actually weather sort of a price war better than most. That can't be said for lots of other oil producing economies that have uh, maybe might have quite low production costs, but have huge uh, fiscal dependence on oil, um, and they need much higher oil prices in order to balance their budget. And that has to do with countries, um, including Iraq, Libya, which has had a blockade of its oil amidst this broader unrest and within the, an uncertainty within the country. You have sort of West African producers. There are really countries all over the world that rely on oil to feed their budgets and now find themselves in an extremely painful um, situation. And there's a risk that for those oil producing economies, you're going to see further unrest that in turn makes it harder for them to deal with to deal with containing the coronavirus. And this pain, of course, extends to Saudi Arabia, whose production costs are low, but which also depends on higher oil prices. So it's not really clear in the, uh, you know, in the long term, I'm not actually against a kind of price war that forces out high cost producers and makes them keep their oil in the ground. But in the very short term, it's hard to see who the winner in this price war is. It's going to inflict a lot of pain in a lot of places. Charlotte Howard, Johnny Sullivan, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, how the coronavirus is boosting a new Chinese industry. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When millions of people are forced to hunker down at home, many businesses struggle, but others flourish. When SARS hit China in 2003... Citizens were all cooped up at home, and so naturally, social media took off. Stephanie Studer is The Economist's Shanghai business correspondent. And the other big area that did was e-commerce. And Richard Liu, who then ran a chain of consumer electronics shops, he had about a, a dozen of them, decided this was his moment to shut them all and set up JD.com, which is now one of China's biggest e-merchants valued at over $60 billion. The spread of COVID-19 is boosting another fledgling industry in China, telemedicine. So, Stephanie, what exactly is telemedicine? Telemedicine is a range of healthcare services delivered online, and that could be either a consultation with a doctor by video link, or it might be ordering drugs online, 
or uh, simply uploading some of your own x-rays or scans or blood tests and given a response on what they mean. And how big a business has this become in China? Well, it was already growing at quite a rapid clip before the epidemic. It was estimated this year to grow to 158 billion yuan. And a lot of that has been driven by the online pharmacy sales. So rather than going into your local pharmacy, you would order that online, whatever you needed. And that's quite natural because in China, there's so much that is being ordered online. There are very sophisticated logistics networks. And so that was simply seen as an easier way of getting your medication. And since September, the government has allowed prescription medication also to be bought online. And that gave a huge boost to the industry, probably about 90 billion yuan. But now more and more people are going online to consult with doctors. And how much has the epidemic changed things? Because I suppose with people being stuck at home or being forced to stay at home, then they can't go out to the doctor as they could before. So are they turning more and more to the to the online services? They have. I mean, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of anxiety. So people simply seeking reassurance from a doctor that flu-like symptoms are not this novel coronavirus. People with other ailments that have nothing to do with the virus have been turned away from some hospitals simply because the clinics are overwhelmed and they haven't been able to get their usual checkups and medication. And as you can imagine, a hospital is the last place that anybody in China has wanted to be for quite a few weeks now. So it just seemed natural that, you know, you're at home, you've got your smartphone, and there are these online healthcare firms that are already set up. And they really kicked into action. I spoke to the boss of JD Health, which is a subsidiary of JD.com that did so well during the 2003 virus. And uh, he told me that consultations on the platform had grown tenfold to two million. So it sounds as if this is actually, during the epidemic, being pretty helpful, taking pressure off, off the hospitals. Yes, it has. I mean, the hospital system in China is already underdeveloped. Part of the problem is that so many people spurn GPs. They want to go straight to the hospital to see a specialist. And that puts immense pressure on hospitals. They tend to see the bulk of patients, even with fairly minor ailments. So now, of course, by having a mass of people go online, you've got effectively a sort of triage that's happening early on. And do you think behaviour has been permanently changed or that once the outbreak starts to fade, people will start going back to their favourite GP and going to see them in person like they did before? Well, the companies I spoke to, of course, very much hope that behaviours are changing and that this will be a lasting change. And I suspect it will be as well, partly because the government has recognised how important these online healthcare firms have been in supplementing China's physical healthcare system at a time of crisis like this. So these online healthcare firms really pulled out the stops and made sure they were offering free consultations. Dingxiang Doctor, which is quite a well-known online myth-busting forum, did a lot of work to build a heat map tracking where um, new infections were happening. And billions have gone on to see that map and follow it daily. 
Ding Xiang Doctor was also, through various connections, able to get critical epilepsy medication to 300 children in Hubei province when it was on lockdown. And that's at a time when the government itself was finding it hard to get suppliers to distribute medication into the province. So they've clearly shown the government that they are needed and necessary. And as a result, the government has loosened restrictions during this epidemic to make sure that they can take on the overflow. The recent growth then has been astonishing, uh, driven largely, as as we've said, by the epidemic. But in the end, this is a business podcast, uh, Stephanie. So is it profitable? Are these telemedicine companies actually making money? For now, it seems that many aren't. So JD Health is still a privately held company. So the financials are woolly. And um, I asked them if they thought that this epidemic might help them to reach profitability sooner. And they didn't want to tell me anything about that. I believe that Ping An Good Doctor has said publicly, and it is listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, that it hopes to reach profitability by next year. But at the moment, uh, I think that most of these companies are not too bothered about the fact that they're losing money, particularly during this epidemic. Most of them have made their online consultations free. And what they're focusing on really is just changing attitudes and behaviours and hoping that, you know, once they've hooked people with a free consultation, once somebody's got to know an online doctor, they'll want to come back again. And final thought, is the rise of telemedicine a good thing? Is it good for patients and is it good for doctors? I think it's good all round. I spoke to a doctor who had been at a what's called a AAA hospital in Beijing, which is the very top tier. And she decided to leave to consult full time for JD Health. And she said that she enjoyed seeing a far greater variety of patients. She said to me, you know, I now get to see patients who have to fight for healthcare, and they could be in the countryside or in rich cities. It's a very egalitarian service. She also said that she had many peers who were doing the same thing, also jumping ship and going online. Pharmacies like it, they can shift lots of stuff online as well. So it's really a a healthy and virtuous circle. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you, Patrick. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. You can follow our continuing coverage of the impact of COVID-19 in the upcoming edition of The Economist. To subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.